0: Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at just a few verses today, verse 9 through verse 13. If you would please stand with me as we read these verses. It says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. This is God's word this morning. And I want to preach to you this morning on these verses under the title, Genuine Love. May we have genuine love for one another. Please pray with me one more time as we dive in. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now. Help me to communicate your text truthfully. Your truths, not merely my ideas, open our hearts to be shaped by the likeness of Christ that we see in these verses. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Genuine love. Genuine love. You guys have genuine love? That's the question, isn't it? Three years ago this this week, a virus shut everything down. You remember that? Where were you the day (laughs) that schools were suspended for two weeks? Right? Two weeks. And then two weeks later, we had a stay-at-home order issued. And everything changed. One thing that changed was that you can now walk into a bank wearing a mask. (laughs) Think about it. Like Going back a little over three years ago, if you would have walked into a bank with a mask on, that would have cued the police. I remember the first time I walked into a bank post-2020, forgetting my mask when we were still supposed to wear masks everywhere, and I was told, put a mask on. And I thought, uh, this is so ironic, you know, like I'm walking into a bank, hey, sir, please wear this mask. You know, and as time has gone on, you know, we have discovered the benefit of wearing masks, especially when you got the sniffles are a little cold and you've got to be in a social setting or uh, you you're, uh, have to be a little more precautionary. We've gotten used to signs that say, "Please wear a mask." And uh, And they can be helpful. Now, I don't want to talk about N95 masks this morning. What I do want to talk about is an unhelpful kind of mask that we often put on and wear. The kind of uh, undetected mask which displays a phony love, the metaphorical mask which covers our fears and our insecurities and protects, our, protects us from the vulnerability of relationships, this mask which becomes then a, can become a facade, it can become a fake love. The mask that we put on when we lack genuine love. What is this mask? Well, it's a catalog of habits and phrases and mannerisms which you've learned and picked up, which which display the symptoms of love but lack the real love germ which infects the soul and leads us to actual care and concern for other people. And if churches aren't careful, we can accept this masked kind of love as love. If we're not careful, we can become okay with the fake. We can become okay with the phony. You know, we might say, figurative sign, as you're coming in, please put your mask on. You can pretend to love me, and that's okay, I'll accept it, because I'm just going to pretend to love you. And we're going to dance our religious dance, and then we're going to go home unchanged and unmoved and unloved. But verse 9 says, as he's writing to the church... Coming off of verse 1 and 2, which says, I appeal to you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what the the changed community looks like. This is what the people of God look like as they have a new mind in Christ, as they are actively renewing their mind in Christ. What do they look like? Well, we get to verse 9, and he says this. He says, let your love be what? Come on, somebody. Let your love be genuine. Genuine Genuine is a compound Greek word, two words put together. It's not hypocritical. Let love be not hypocritical. As a matter of fact, the the word-for-word translation of this is very simple. It is love, not hypocritical hypocritical. What does that word mean? Well, hi- a hypocrite in the ancient Greek world was an actor. It was uh, somebody who gets on a stage uh, and, and they put on a mask. They are a player. In the ancient world, they had an amphitheater and they had no backstage. And so the actors would literally put on their masks in front of everybody and walk down the aisle to the stage in the middle of the amphitheater. And it was very clear who the hypocrites were, the actors the players. And so Jesus then, when he's talking about the religious who are fake and phony, he actually appropriates this word hypocrite. And he says, you guys are hypocrites. You are actors. You are stage players. You are wearing masks. Your religion is a sham. You love with pretense. You, you know how to adopt the mannerisms and uh, the, the actions and the words and the vocabulary that, that look like love. Yeah. But have you guys ever known the kind of person who knows how to put it on and after a while it's kind of clear that they're just putting on a show? They're just going through the act. There's nothing genuine about their concern and their care. This is what we're we're called to watch out for. He says, don't be fake. In religious environments, we are tempted to be fake. We're tempted to portray something that we are not. We're tempted to have a kind of love that we don't have. Now here's our challenge. The challenge is this. Somebody will say, okay, I'll stop being fake. I'll just start showing you how unloving I really am. You see, the problem is, is we don't always feel loving. And your feelings matter, like they're real, but your feelings are impacted by sin. And as a result, we're led often to distrust and loneliness and angerness and even bitterness and even hatred and wrath. Toward others. And so some might say, well, you know, I don't feel love and, you know, I, I feel bitter toward everybody. And so therefore I would be wrong to not show who I really am. And so I'm going to take the mask off and just show it. Now, some people do this. I, I remember I learned this when I was a youth pastor at a previous church. I had a, a, one of my youth leaders who We were talking about authenticity. We were talking about like, how do we lead our youth to be more real when they get together? How do we learn to take the masks off? And over time, one of my youth leaders began to to get more distant, and he came in with a chip on his shoulder all the time. And I sat down with him once, and I was like, bro, what's going on? And his response was, I'm taking off my mask. I'm trying to be authentic, and I'm like, hmm, <laughs> we're missing something here. We're missing something here. And this is a significant problem in our culture today. Professor Eric uh, Tanis at Biola University, he says this. He says, there's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. What he's saying is is, is that there's this idea today that that says, if I don't put on display how I feel, then I'm being hypocritical. And Professor Thomas is saying, that's not biblical uh, hypocrisy. He goes on to say, to live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. You see the difference? Listen to this. He goes on to say, to live in conformity with what I believe, in spite of what I feel, isn't hypocrisy, it's integrity. You see, as we look at this text in verse 9, what we discover is that love is not an option. He doesn't say, verse 9, be your genuine self. But rather, he says, let your love be genuine. Why? Well, church, the very basis of our salvation is love. Jesus, too, did not always have the best of friends. Jesus was often ignored and misunderstood and denied by his closest friends. Jesus was rejected by the world. He was denied by the world. Jesus knows what that feels like. But as we see the life of Christ, what we see is that Jesus lived the kind of life that we should have lived. And Jesus went to the cross to die the death that we deserve. Greater love has no man than this, than the one who lays down his life, who gives everything that he is for his brother, his friend. The very display of the Father's love, who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was displayed in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as he died on the cross to cover the guilt of your sins. If you're not a Christian right now, you are invited to become a Christian. And you say, how is that possible? You don't know my life. You don't know if I've done enough to deserve it. This is my first time in church. And what I'm saying is is this. It's because Christ has done it all for you. There is no amount of good that you can do to earn a place in heaven. There aren't a number of church services that you can come to before you can qualify to become a Christian. It is wild. It's crazy. I get it because no other organization uh, or entity operates like that in society. But salvation is not based on what we do. It's based on the grace of God. There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. In His death, He paid for your sins. Your salvation doesn't end with His death. It goes on. Three days later, in power, Christ rose again from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating your guilt. And then He turns to us. And what we're called to do is to turn from our sins and to trust in Jesus Christ. It's like a trust fall. We fall into His grace. We fall into His mercy. And we say, Christ is my life. I believe in Him. I believe. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's what it means to be saved. Do you believe? Listen, this is the greatest love story. Not that we loved Him, but that He first loved us our whole salvation if you're a Christian it is all based on love it's based on God's love now are we people who just get saved and now we remain unchanged and we go about our unloving ways see we've got to pause here we've got to examine our own hearts we've got to examine our own experience of God's love and ask have i been changed Because 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. But he that does not love does not know God. For God is love. You see, we are transformed by love. And then what do we do? We love. It's the renewing of our mind. Let your love then be what? What's the word? Let your love be genuine. The point here is that we must display real love, not fake love, to each other. So, this leads us to the question, then, that's very practical. All right, I hear that, I get it. What do I do if I don't feel love toward the people that are in this room? Let's just start with with us. What do I do if I don't feel that love? I don't even know most of these people. How are you going to tell me to just have genuine love for people that I haven't even met? Hmm fake it till we make it? No. But you're on to something. You know, studies have shown that smiling can actually make you feel better. Uh, Ramona was telling me earlier this week that in counseling for somebody who is struggling with loneliness, that the counselor will often encourage them to go volunteer somewhere when you're feeling lonely. Meaning, our behavior actually matters. Our actions actually matter. And it, it's a, there's a sense in which our feelings can catch up to our actions and to our behaviors. Now, this is not just modern psychology, but what we see here in these verses is that God commands Christians to let their love be genuine, and then he immediately moves from that imperative to a series of behaviors, ways of thinking, thinking and actions. So I think the best understanding of this text is that that first phrase frames everything else that comes after it. In other words, Paul's point is when we think about genuine love, we ought not to dive into our feelings and try to figure out how to turn our bitterness into love, but what we actually do is discover that that, that genuine love is an experience of Christ-like life together. So how do we have genuine love for each other? Well, let's look at this. It's a series of behaviors and ways of thinking and actions. Number one, in verse one, genuine love is in our affirmations. And what I mean by that is what we affirm as good and what we affirm as bad. So in verse one, he goes on to say, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Somebody once said, where love, where there is genuine love, evil is abhorred. Not merely lamented, much less covered up, but hated. Think about this. Let your love be genuine. Number one, hate what is evil. Hate to disregard, to put off, to disengage. This word abhor here in verse 1 is a word that means horror. To have horror for something. Listen, sin is attractive. There is a beautiful part, a beautiful allure to sin. Sin, wickedness, that which is evil, can actually be desired. It can actually, when you look at it, it can be presented as something that you need. Why do Christians look at sin and they say, that's horrifying to me? It's not merely because of the ugliness of sin, but it's because of the attractiveness of sin. What's horrifying to us as we look at what is wicked is to see how easily we can be sucked into it and destroyed, consumed. So we abhor what is evil. And we then, what's the opposite of abhorring something? It would be to cling to something. We cling to what is good. The word cling to right there is the word to be glued to something. Bind yourself, church, to what is good, not what is evil. Cling to what is right and pure, what the Bible defines as holiness. Holiness as the good life not to sin so genuine love begins in what we affirm do we affirm what is good and right and pure and lovely or do we affirm what is evil and wicked secondly going on genuine love is seen in our affections verse 9 genuine have genuine love abhor what is What is evil cling to what is good. Verse 10, love one another with what kind of affection? With a a brotherly affection, a family kind of affection. Outdo one another, he says, in showing good. Now, the word for love in verse 10 is different than the word for love in verse 9. In verse 9, we see the word agape in the Greek. And then when we get to verse 10, he changes the word to phileo, which means a brotherly kind of love show this brotherly kind of love with, and then he uses another word that refers to family affections. Now what's interesting about this is that nowhere else in all of Greek literature is this word used for anything other than regular actual flesh and blood siblings. Meaning the idea of saying, hey, let's have brotherly love for each other, speaking to a group like this, where most of us are not blood-related. Most of us did not grow up together. Most of us did not grow up in the same household, the same context even, the same culture. We come together as a group of people that are from different backgrounds and some of us don't even know each other. Nowhere in all of Greek literature outside of the Bible was a group like this called to have brotherly affection for one another. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have family affections? It's, you know, for some people, they're good at showing physical affections. It can include that. It can include the way that we embrace one another. Some people are very good with their words and building each other up. Some people are very good in, in, in meeting needs, but whatever ways and uh, displays of this affection, what we can know is this, is that we're talking about the kind of intimacy that you would have with your very own flesh and blood, sibling, with your own family, the kind of commitment that you would have to each other, you know, the kind of commitment that, you know, brothers and sisters, they don't always see eye to eye, but they're there for each other. They're committed to one another. And in the church, in the New Testament church, what they discovered is that they had this kind of love for each other, this kind of affection for each other. Now for some, this is hard, because you've never experienced a good family. You've never experienced the kind of uh, sibling affection that we're talking about. And for some, what you'll discover, and there have been those in our church that have told me they've discovered this In the body of Christ, what you'll discover is that the church teaches you what family is. It's not mushy all the time. It's it's not always feeling good. But it's the practice of real love. It's the practice of real commitment to one another. It's showing this in our affections for each other. Now, how is this countercultural? This is countercultural in that... In the world, you'll find plenty of people who do this for their friends. They have this kind of affection for those that they love. They show up for them. They support their friends. The church does it for everybody. We do it for people that we've never even met before. Like there are family members in this room that you will meet this morning. And you're called to have a brotherly, sisterly, sibling kind of affection for that individual. You with me? Paul puts some flesh on this. He goes on in the next line. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. I like this. Outdo each other. I think Paul might be being a little sarcastic here. Paul was an athlete, we believe. And he might be sarcastically kind of referring to that athletic kind of competition. He's like, look, you want to have competition with each other? You want to compete against each other? Do this. Have a competition to see who can show the most honor to one another. Outdo each other. Win in how much you appreciate and encourage your fellow brothers and sisters in the church. But it could also mean, that word outdo also means lead. Lead. It might be that he's saying to become a leader in this way. Lead the church, lead one another in how you show honor, how you show encouragement. Many of you know that my wife and I do, uh, we're part of a CrossFit gym, and this is not a CrossFit commercial, but it's going to sound like one, all right? Bear with me. And I get most people don't like CrossFit because CrossFit people think CrossFit is the only thing to, you know, forgive me. I'm not that guy. This is an analogy. It's an illustration. So we're part of this CrossFit gym. And one thing I have discovered through being in CrossFit for a couple years is that one of the draws to keep coming back to the gym that I always hear from even beginners people who have never touched a barbell in their life, they say, I keep coming because everybody is so encouraging. And that's true. I was at the gym this last Saturday, and I I, I was reminded of how encouraging everybody is. You know, that's part of the culture where you show up, and it's just, just the fact that you're here is a win. Just the fact that you showed up. And you're encouraged not according to someone else's abilities and skills and progress, but you're encouraged according to your own. Where you're at. For taking that next stride, for taking that next step. Oh, that people would say that of the church. Is it possible, is it possible that the church has exchanged encouragement for discouragement? Is it possible that, that in, in, in churches, people come and they, they feel not encouraged just, just for the fact that they showed up and they're there, but their, their, their weaknesses are pointed out instead? They feel discouraged because they're not where somebody else is at. You know, do, are, are we a church of encouragement to one another? A church where we would say, oh, let's outdo each other in showing honor. Do we have these kinds of affections? Zwingli once said, he said, when you sow seeds of contentiousness, at the same time you banish love. When you die, will you be known as someone who built others up? Or will you be known as someone who pointed out their flaws? Have you exchanged an appreciative spirit for a critical spirit? Now, I'm so thankful for the fact that in this church, there is a culture of encouragement. I'm not one that would be in any way negative about this community right here. I've seen it. I've seen how you have encouraged those who are brand new believers, struggling, just trying to hold on. At the same time, we can grow, we can do better. Church, encourage one another. See how people have taken strides, not merely the myriad of ways they fall short. And in this, what we do is we're modeling Christ for one another. Listen, it's Christ who knows our every weakness. It's Christ who knows everything about you. And Christ says, you are the light of the world. Why? Is that because he, he, he sees something in you that nobody else sees? No, it's because when he looks at you, he sees himself. He sees himself all over you. You are in Christ. And you are then sent as those in Christ to be the light of the world. And so be the light of the world that you are. And when you engage with each other, see Christ in them. And outdo one another in encouragement and showing honor to the weak. Number three, genuine love is in our action. It's in our action. Look at verse 11. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in zeal, in, in spirit, and serve the Lord. What is laziness? Laziness is taking it easy. Laziness is is the person who never extends herself. She never goes the extra mile. In zeal for the gospel, the lazy person is slothful. He has none. If a ministry opportunity doesn't slap him in the face, he's not going to go out and find it. The contrary to being slothful in zeal is to be fervent in the Spirit. Meaning, be boiling over with your desire to serve God. Now, how do we get there? Some debate whether or not fervent in the spirit has to do with the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. But I think that that is a, a false dichotomy. Meaning, the the human spirit is fired up by the Holy Spirit. Not apart from. You see, so often we think of our spirits as something that controls us in a sense. You know, my, my spirit is this or my spirit is that, as opposed to something that we can actually change. It's the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. Think about it. A thermometer takes the temperature of something, whereas a thermostat controls the temperature of something. You see, if we approach our spirit as a thermometer, we're just simply saying, you know, well, I'm lazy in spirit. I'm slothful in spirit. That just must be who I am. But we're called here to be fervent in spirit, which means that the spirit is more like a thermostat, that we can turn it up. How? Through the Holy Spirit, through the means of God's grace in which he changes us, meaning church. Place yourself under the means of God's grace, which the Holy Spirit uses to fire up our spirits. Be in the Word every day. Be in prayer every day. Figure out what you need to do to fire up your spirit, to be boiling over with zeal so that you might, as he says, serve the Lord. This is not... Fanaticism or craziness. What we're talking about is being fueled with a cross shaped passion as we look to Christ and as we desire his glory and his name to be known. So, genuine love, that's our theme, remember. It is seen in, let me just recap, in our affirmations of what's good and bad, in our affections our family affections toward each other, in our actions, our service uh, to the Lord. Number four, genuine love is seen in how we deal with affliction, how we deal with affliction. Look at verse 12. He goes on to say, rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. I've told you before about Miss Tuggy, who was a, uh, over 100 years old when I knew her in my young 20s, and I would go and meet with her regularly, and she was blind from her cataracts, and she was bound to her chair, and I would meet with her, and she would be filled with joy. And I remember this one day in particular, I was with her, and, and uh, looking into her her glazed-over kind of eyes as she's just thinking about the Lord and she says, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And as like a 24-year-old, I remember looking at her situation and, you know, her family was struggling, her son was having all these, all these health issues, you know, she was, did not have much money, she lived in this very, very small house and just nothing, you know, she had no, no, nothing, nothing about her physical reality would make her happy. And as a young man, I remember looking around thinking, like, how could she be so happy? And then she goes on to talk about the forgiveness of sins that that she has in Christ. And her hope in heaven. And her hope in the recreation, the resurrection of the dead. She really believed these things. And she hoped in these things. And she rejoiced. Look what the text says. It says, rejoice in hope you see we rejoice often in our surroundings we rejoice in what we have we rejoice in what we've accomplished friends that does not lead us to genuine love what does is this to rejoice in hope how well let's go on be patient in tribulation you know and the scriptures calls us to wait on the lord to wait on Him. There are things that you're going through right now, tribulations that you're facing that you can do nothing about. Nothing. Like you've, I, I am a, a fix-it kind of personality. Like when I, when I encounter a problem, I just can't stop thinking about it until I fix it. It keeps me up all night. And that's not a good thing. There are things that we can't do anything about. And the Christian is called to be patient. To be patient in tribulation as we wait on the Lord. And then he goes on, this is just, I love the Bible because it's so practical, isn't it? He tells us how. Verse uh, verse 12 continues be constant in prayer. Like, yes, have your dedicated prayer time in the morning. Have some dedicated prayer time with your family or your, 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 your spouse or your friends or, or yourself in the evenings. Have your dedicated prayer times, but also pray the kinds of prayers that don't end. You know, pray, just be in constant communion with God. Get into the habit of praying all the time for everything, you know, like you're, you're, you can't find the cereal that you're looking for. Lord, help me find the cereal. He cares about every bit of our life. And He wants us to be in constant communion with Him. Now, how does this lead to genuine love? Well, it's simple. Just think of my description of Miss Tuggy. You know, these kind of people, they're life-giving. You want to be around them. They love you well. So, therefore, genuine love is seen in how we deal with our afflictions. Fifth, and last, genuine love is seen in assistance, how we assist one another, how we help each other. Look at verse 13, uh, uh, and we'll close here. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality meaning you're not feeling genuine love, well, find a need and seek to meet it. That word contribute means to give. Give of yourself. Give of your money. There are times where people literally need money. They need help. They haven't been able to save or make as much as you have. They are really struggling, and they need help. We, ought to give, we, have, we take an offering every Sunday. You know, that's not just so our church can, like, be wealthy. That is so that we can contribute to the needs of the saints. You know, when you give uh, an offering to the church, it is meeting needs, the need for worship, you know, the need that we have to be under the Word, the need that we have uh, uh, to, to, to commune together, the need that we have to... to uh, care for one another when they need groceries, and we're able to do that out of our offerings. We contribute to the needs of the saints, so it does mean financial. But it's not just financial. To give is is to give of our whole life. Like some folks, they don't need money as much as they need a friend. They need a mentor. They need an opportunity. In what ways can we give? Can we meet needs? Can we contribute to the needs of the saints? This, this is more than just simply in our church. Think of Paul's ministry as he's in Corinth. He's taking an offering for the church in Jerusalem. When we see saints here, we need to recognize that this includes all the saints. Other churches that might be struggling. Other communities that might be struggling. And we together, individually or collectively, contribute to the needs of the Uh, uh, of the saints. He goes on, under the same banner, uh, my banner, of assistance, he goes on to say, seek to show hospitality. Everybody say hospitality. 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 That's not disconnected from meeting needs, is it? Hospitality. When we think of hospitality, the first thing I typically think of is eating together. There's something about sharing a meal together where life happens. I love the example of Rosaria Butterfield. In her book, uh, um, what's it called? Something has a key. What? Gospel comes with a key? House comes with a key? The house comes with a key. The gospel comes with a key. Okay. The, The gospel comes with a house key. Uh, It's on Amazon, Rosaria Butterfield. You'll find it. Something about a key. (laughs) Radical hospitality. About four or five o'clock every day, the Butterfields have their home open and people start coming over. They say usually it's the younger singles first and they'll still be doing, you know, like laundry and working with the kids and and uh, starting to help with dinner prep. And people just come over and they just start working together and helping out. And then more people show up. And they'll have 15, 20 people over. And they're uh, pouring more water into the soup to, uh, uh, to make sure that it spreads. And, and this is their daily life. It's not some kind of big planned event. It's just life together. Listen, it, it, discipleship happens life on life. And so we, we have to actually live together to some degree in order for that to happen. So having a culture of hospitality in your own life and in our church is a way to connect lives with lives to see people come, become more like Jesus. And it's also meeting needs, isn't it? It's meeting a real need. It can be meeting the need for friendship for some. And for another, it's just, it could just be meeting the need of, they need to eat. Hospitality, though, also, it's not just eating together. In the ancient world, and the way that Paul would be thinking here is probably, it would include that, but it was also opening up your home for overnight guests. So in the ancient world, the Christians would not have been staying in inns, they had inns, but often they were not the best place to stay or unable to stay there. Where did Christians stay when they traveled? You all know? With other Christians. Like Christians they've never even met before. You know, To, to have a, a, a home that's open for the saints to come, to have a respite, to sleep for the night, to have a safe place, hospitality. One of the greatest ways to use your home is to open it up, to overnight guests. Maybe somebody's coming through from our church. Maybe somebody needs a temporal place to stay in our church. Maybe somebody needs a long-term place to stay, and you can work out a situation where there's a little bit of a a rent for a room or something like that. Now, one of the pushbacks often is this. Well, my, my apartment or my home is too small. It's not ready. I don't have a guest room. I don't have the ability to have people stay the night. Can we go back to the whole family affections piece? How do family members do it when they got family come in town? They put blankets on the couch, and they put an air mattress on the floor. Like, you don't tell your family you can't come because I don't have a guest room. You just make it happen. This is the kind of culture that we have as Christians, and it's so different from the world. So how do we show genuine love to each other? It's in our affirmations. It's in our affections. It's in our action. It's in our affliction. Uh, It's in our assistance. Seek to show hospitality. By the way, he wouldn't say seek to show if it just came easily. He's saying you got to strive for this thing. It's not going to feel natural. You got to work. Try, he says, to show assistance in this way. Where do we most see this in the Scriptures? Before Jesus went to the cross, before Jesus went to the cross, his own friend, one of his closest friends, Peter, denied him. Right there, in that moment, what we saw was fake and phony love. The kind of love that does not stick with a brother. The kind of love that does not deal well with tribulation. The kind of love that is unable to offer any hospitality or assistance. The kind of love that that, that affirms what is evil, not what is good. And there before Peter, as he's denying Christ, he's seeing the greatest action of love the world has ever seen. After Christ rose from the dead, Jesus is on the, on, on, the, on the beach and he's grilling up some fish for Peter. And the disciples come over and there Peter, for the first time, stands before the risen Christ. And Jesus asks Peter, you know this story, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, he asks him three times, do you love me? Yes, do you love me? Yes. Genuine love. And Jesus affirms his love. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't say, no, you don't. You did that, and he receives it. Peter has been changed by the risen Christ. What does Jesus say after Peter affirms his love for him? Peter, feed my sheep. Don't you see that genuine love and right action are married? They go hand in hand. What was it that transformed Peter? It wasn't Peter getting himself together. It wasn't Peter even just going through the motions of love. But it was this encounter with Jesus. And church, I wonder if you have encountered Christ. Have you encountered the Christ who died for you? Have you encountered the Christ who rose from the dead? Who was it that showed us real love, not fake love? Is it not Jesus Christ? Who is it that hated evil and clung to what is good? Is it not Jesus Christ? Who was it that was, that it was and is devoted to us, showing honor to the weak? It was Jesus Christ. Who is it that served the Father with all of His heart? It was Jesus Christ. Did he share with people in need? Absolutely. Jesus gave of him his whole self and he paid the whole price. Is Christ hospitable? Absolutely, as he invites us to live in his home forever and ever. Church, encounter genuine love and then genuinely love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and his genuine love for us. May we respond with genuine love for each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.